We're wrapping up our series called Who Cares? Last week, Jake said he was wrapping it up. He was wrong. <laughs> Jake, you're wrong. He'll watch this later. You're wrong. Jake's gone. I get to do whatever I want. I'm wrapping up the series today. We're talking about who cares. Uh, and in this series, we've been talking about what it looks like to share Jesus out of the overflow of your life. And maybe you've begun to notice this as you've shared Jesus with people that whenever we get into these conversations of sharing Jesus, we tend to fall into one of two categories. We either fall into the relationship side where we focus solely on building relationships, building trust, and doing life together, or we fall into this kind of more academic side where we discuss these deep questions and we dig into the theology and the philosophy of life. And the harsh reality is that these perspectives will fail on their own. You see, if you are all relationships and no knowledge, you're going to have a lot of friends and no answers to give them. And if you're all knowledge and no relationships, you're going to have all the answers and no one will want to hear them. And I want to tell you two quick stories of, in my life, how I've seen this play out of people that have kind of fallen on, on both sides of the spectrum. Someone that was all brains, no relationships. Someone that was no brains, all relationships. So I'll start with the, the brains guy. I used to work with a guy that legitimately was the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. Highly educated, highly intelligent. You could talk to him for 10 seconds and feel dumber. He was just brilliant. He spent all this time accruing knowledge. And in the midst of his great knowledge, he said one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, in, the, in the role that we worked in, in our job, we were kind of responsible for different territories of the United States. And every year we would shuffle territories so that we can keep things fresh. So I'm in my office with him and we're working through. He's looking at a map of the United States. And he's talking and I'm taking notes. And then he just kind of pauses. And I say, Dan, are, are you okay? He's looking at the map and he goes... What the heck is Dubaque? I'm like, Dan, <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, right there on the map, it says Dubaque. I said, Dan, that's Dubuque, Iowa. <laughs> in the midst of his knowledge, he missed Dubuque <laughs> in everything that he's looked at. But on the flip side, whereas this person was the smartest person I've ever known, there was a girl I knew in college that was not. And that might sound mean, but this is a girl that tried to unlock a door at Walmart with her car key fob. That's what we're dealing with. She was very kind, very friendly, but not someone that you want on your group projects, right? <laughs> so we're eating in the cafeteria. I'm eating lunch with my friends, and she's with us, and she is like hacking up a lung to clear her throat. Like, <laughs> so I tell her, it's actually better for your throat. And this is true. This is a fun fact for everyone here. It's better for your vocal cords to actually clear your throat with an H sound to kind of wheeze it out. Like, <laughs> that's better for your throat. And I told her this, and you can see in her mind, the wheels try to begin to turn, to process. Okay, you make an H sound to clear your throat. And she gets very quiet. So I go back to talking with my friends, and she gets kind of quiet, and she pulls back. She and out of the corner of my eye, I see her turn her head to the side, and she goes, H. <laughs> no. <laughs> she missed something. And so the common thing between these two people, if you're all brains and no relationships, or if you're all relationships and no brains, you will miss something. And for us as followers of Jesus, this has massive implications. Because if you're all brains, your brain doesn't save people. Just because you're smart enough and you know the answers, that's not what saves people. And if you have a heart for people, you're all relationships, your heart for people doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. And if we miss that, we miss the gospel. 
And so, knowing that over the last few weeks in this series of Who Cares, we placed a big and necessary emphasis on the importance of building relationships, we also want to make sure that we are equipped with the brain knowledge side of things so that when questions and tragedy arises, we have truth to fall back on. And hopefully, after today, you won't even have to think about shifting your mindset from relational to academic conversations. You just get to share the truth of Jesus. And so to do that, I want to work through a passage in the book of Romans. So you can either follow along in the app, or you can open your Bible to Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us, sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Now, in that passage alone, you have a ton of truths for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm just going to look at three today. And as we work through this passage, where you're going to intentionally contrast God's word and God's solutions with the solutions that are offered by the world. Because the world thinks that it has a better solution for us than Jesus. And so when questions arise and we're looking for answers, we need to make sure that we go to God, not the world. Right? And so the first truth that we want to see is this in this passage. That because of Jesus... We have peace with God, that we have been made right in God's sight. Now, some of your translations, if you're using different translations, uh, I'm in the New Living Translation, some of your translations will say the word justified there. To be justified means to be legally declared innocent. And I think it's crucial that we understand what this means because I think we miss this all the time in how we live out our lives. You see, it's important for us that we ground ourselves on God's definition of guilt and justification and not the world's. Because the world's definition, the way the world lives to remove guilt and declare someone innocent is deeply broken. We don't need to look far to see examples of broken justice in our world. The example that I thought of when I was preparing this was Emmett Till. If you're not familiar with Emmett Till's story, uh, Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy, an African-American boy in the 1950s, visiting family in Mississippi. And he was strolling through town, and Emmett Till was accused of flirting with and whistling at a white woman. And the response of that woman's husband and his friend was to take justice into their own hands because they had declared Emmett Till guilty of this crime. And so to execute justice, they kidnapped Emmett Till, beat him, tortured him, shot him, and threw his body into the river. Those two men were arrested and were brought to trial and were declared not guilty. 
That is not justice. And the lesson that we learn from that is that when we live by the standards of this world, we will remove guilt where it's to be rightly placed, and we will find guilt where there is none. Because we make judgments based on appearance and skin color and political preference and social status and education, and the list goes on. And the lesson that we learn here is that we are bad at justice. When we live by the standards of this world, justice is not served. Because we make decisions quickly based on poor evidence, superficial characteristics, and we execute harsh judgments based on poorly made decisions. And when we go to God's word, we can be thankful that God does not do that with us. So here is the biblical understanding of God's justification for us in Romans. If you read Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, it's made very clear that we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we deserve God's wrath. Even if the only sin that you've ever committed is a teeny tiny harmless little sin that no one even knows about. What matters is that that tiny sin was committed against God. And that's not a concept that our world understands. If it's a small sin, you get eternal punishment. That doesn't track. And so I, I wanted to come up with an illustration that I think paints this picture a little clearer for us. Let's say that your neighbor puts up a fence around their property, and they put up a no trespassing sign. And you walk past that sign, and you think, that's stupid. I can go wherever I want. And so you hop the fence. That simple act of trespassing is punishable by a fine of $250, and up to 30 days in jail. But now let's change the circumstances. Instead of hopping your neighbor's fence, you instead work up the courage to hop a little fence located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, DC. For those that need another hint, that's a, it's a White House. And now your punishment looks different for the same action for hopping the fence. Instead of $250, your fine is up to $100,000. And instead of 30 days in jail, you can spend a year in jail. But it's the same thing, right? All you did was hop the fence. You didn't hurt anyone. You didn't intend to harm anyone. You just wanted to exercise your free will to be your own person. But the punishment for that crime is radically different based on the value of the thing that you committed the crime against. And so we go back to our sin it might only be a small sin. And if we're being honest, it's not only a small sin. But let's just say it's a small, tiny sin. What matters is that God's word tells us that when we sin, we sin directly against an infinitely holy and perfect and valuable God. David, in Psalm 51.4, when David is repenting of murdering a man to sleep with his wife, so David sins against two people. David says that it's against you, God, and you alone that I have sinned. You see, David understood that however big or small your sin was, that your sin was directly against God's law and against God. And so you're rightfully deserving of God's wrath. But then we get back to Romans 5 and things look different. You see, in Christ, I don't get God's wrath. In Christ, I get peace with God. And this is the thing as Jesus followers that I think we miss all the time. And if you can take this truth and drill it through your brain and through your heart and let it rest in your soul, this will solve so many anxieties that we have about our relationship with God. 
And this is that simple truth. If you are in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God. Period. I'm going to say that again so that it sinks in with us. If you are in Christ, you will never, ever experience wrath from God. But Mark, what if I sin again? There's no wrath. What if I mess up with my family? There's no wrath. What if I fall back into the same pattern of sin that I've been wrestling with for years? If you are in Christ, all of the wrath that was meant for you is placed on Jesus. And it is fully absorbed on the cross. And in case this passage in Romans is not enough for you, I have a rapid fire spattering of verses from God's word to further confirm this point. So if you are someone that wrestles with your relationship with God, that you doubt your innocence before God, that you have doubts about your salvation, write these down because these are the truths that God offers us. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, some of you were once like that, you were sinners but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Peter 2.24, he, Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Titus 3.4-7, this one blows my mind. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's because of his grace he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. The overwhelming testimony of God's word over and over and over again is that you are made innocent because Jesus is made guilty. And when Jesus pays for your guilt, he pays for all of it, and you will never be guilty again. And this is a concept that our world cannot understand. Because in our world, if you do something bad, you're supposed to be punished continually. You have to pay for it and then some. The way we do that is by canceling people. You said something I don't like, canceled. Voted for the wrong candidate, canceled. You didn't like my Facebook post. You're canceled. I know you're watching online. You don't, watch my, you don't like my Facebook posts. You're all canceled. That's how our world deals with guilt and justification. And this is the hope that we get to offer to those that are around us. That Jesus does not cancel you. Jesus cancels your sin. He cancels your guilt and your shame and everything that you have going against you. And he brings peace between you and God. That is the truth that we get to offer to those that are around us. Let's jump to the second truth that we see here in Romans 5. If you read verses 3, 4, and 5 again, the Apostle Paul talks to us about suffering. Anyone here experienced suffering? Or do you know anyone that's suffered? I would imagine if we're all participating, we could all raise both hands and keep them up pretty long because we're alive. <laughs> we are human. Of course we have suffered. And what does Paul say about suffering in the context of us finding peace with God? 
Well, if you go back and read those verses, uh, to summarize it, Paul basically says that if you lose everything, rejoice, because you still have your relationship with God. You still have your stamp of innocence, and as bad as the suffering might be in this life, as hard as this life might get, as difficult it is as it is to walk through life when you've lost a loved one, as difficult it is and as painful it is to go through life with a physical illness or disability, as big as the pile of debt might become, as deep as your pains might be, as hard as your suffering gets, you will never experience the fullness of suffering that Jesus experienced for you on the cross. That's the hope that we have. That's why the truth of being justified before God is so important, that this life is hard. And it seems like it's only getting harder as each day goes by. And yet Paul, the Apostle Paul, a man who up to this point in his life had experienced tremendous suffering. I mean, to recap, at this point, when Paul writes the letter to the Romans, Paul has been stoned to death and somehow lived. Paul has been imprisoned and beaten and tortured, and the list will continue to go on for Paul. And that same Paul that experienced great suffering says that you can rejoice in that type of suffering, and that is a concept totally contrary to our world, right? The goal of this world is to reduce suffering as much as possible. You try to gain and gather as many comforts in life as you can. You have a headache, here's a pill. Your friendships are strained, just cut that friend out. You don't need that negativity in your life. Your relationship with family members is getting a little harder because of political differences or parenting philosophies or whatever it might be. You need to build boundaries around your life, right? This is how our world talks about these hardships. Because in this life, your goal is to create a comfy, cozy life, to make it as comfortable as possible. And if an obstacle ever should arise, you can take care of it quickly with the swipe of a credit card. But what God's word shows us is that in the context of us being innocent and having a relationship with God, our perspective on suffering shifts. Because now our goal is not to escape suffering, our goal, our, because our suffering has a purpose. And that purpose of suffering is to push us closer to Jesus. Paul says that suffering produces endurance. Endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens confident hope of salvation. Now, when Paul talks about this, he is not saying that by suffering, we simply gain a thicker skin and we can suffer even greater pains down the road, and it won't even affect that mature Christian who has suffered it all. What Paul is saying is that the hope that you hold in the midst of suffering is your relationship with Jesus. You see, all over this world, people are moving from one hope to the next, trying to find a sense of salvation from their suffering by getting things fixed. And when one person or institution fails, we move on to the next person or institution that promises to fix all of our problems and alleviate all of our issues. We do this with politicians, with marriages, with family and friends. Friends, we do this with churches. If you can't fix my problem, I'm going somewhere else. And as Christ followers, we can actually contribute to this problem by how we talk about problems. Has anyone seen any political discussions in the last few days? How do we talk about that? 
Do we enter into those conversations as if the salvation of the world is on the line if our political guy or girl loses or wins? What Paul is saying here is that the hope we hold in suffering is not a politician, it's not a law, it's not a person in this world. Our hope is in our salvation through Jesus. And we now have purpose in suffering because we know God uses it to produce an endurance within us through the power of the Holy Spirit to gain a strength of character so that when suffering comes, that strength of character can respond and instead of defaulting to the world's perspective that says suffering is meant to be escaped as quickly as possible, the strength of character that the Holy Spirit produces within us can instead look at our suffering and look at Jesus and say, Jesus, whatever suffering I experience is nothing compared to what you experienced on the cross for me. And because you suffered unimaginable pain on my behalf, I have hope in my relationship with you. And it's in this way that suffering actually becomes a reminder of the strength and security of our relationship with God. And if you are someone that is suffering right now, or if you think you will suffer later, write these verses down. Because again, these are God's truths for us in the midst of suffering. James 1, 2 through 4, brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And so let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect, complete, needing nothing. Romans 8, 38 and 39, this is one of my favorite passages. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, not our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. There's nothing in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Revelation 21, 33 through 4. This is what our hope directs us to. This is what we look forward to. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, all of these things are gone forever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s, and he was quoted as saying, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. What Spurgeon is saying here is that this life will slam wave after wave after wave against you. But it's the follower of Jesus who learns to embrace those waves because they push us closer to Jesus. And God uses suffering in our lives this way because the world looks at us and thinks we're crazy. The world will look at a Christian who is suffering and think there is something different about you. 
I know I have experienced this in my own life where I see people going through tremendous pain and suffering and just step back and think, oh my gosh, there is something different about you. A few years ago, I worked at a Christian university not too far from here, uh, Spring Arbor University, if you're familiar with that. And we had a young lady who worked in our admissions office. Her name was Emily. Uh, and as an admissions representative, Emily would travel around to different schools and college fairs and would help students make their college decision. Uh, and so one morning, Emily woke up. She went through her normal morning routine. She got in her car and she drove off to a college fair. Uh, and at some point along the way, she failed to come to a complete stop at a stop sign and she was struck by a pickup truck. We received word uh, soon after that at the university, and we immediately began to pray, God, would you heal Emily of her injuries? God, would you spare Emily's life? Two days later, Emily passed away from her injuries, 27 years old. We invited her family to the university to pray over them, so a few days later, her parents and her siblings came, and I just remember stepping back and observing her mother, who just lost her 27-year-old daughter, and she was the healthiest person in that room. She was encouraging and holding people and laughing and telling jokes. She talked about how glad she was that Emily wasn't in pain anymore, and she talked about how right at that moment when Emily died, that she knew Emily was in the arms of her savior. The, the funeral service for Emily wasn't really a funeral service, it was a worship service. We just sang worship songs and read scripture. And at the end of that service, the pastor asked that if anyone wanted to know Jesus like Emily did, that they should talk to him afterwards. And when all was said and done, over 10 people gave their lives to Jesus because of Emily's hope because of the hope that comes from a follower of Jesus in the midst of the worst circumstances. And these are two truths that we can offer to a world that is lost and is searching. The truth of being justified and the truth of having hope in suffering. But these truths will fall on deaf ears if we don't share this last truth. And so the last truth that we need to be sure is the loudest and strongest is this. God loves you. Why would God go to these incredible lengths to save a sinner like me? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. Isaiah 54, 10, For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Why would God do this? It's because he loves you. It really is that simple. And that's the thing that I think we miss in sharing with other people because I'm not gonna share with someone that Jesus loves them if I don't believe Jesus loves me. You see, we can read these verses and we can know that God loves us. But when we're faced with the reality of our sin, 
we start to say, ah, he says he loves me, but I don't even love me. How could God love a person like me? And if you encounter someone who is stuck in this downward spiral of not believing that God loves them, if you are here today and you don't believe that God loves you, I wanna tell you about a God who loves you and we know that because he tells us he loves you. I wanna tell you about a God of the universe who before the universe even existed looked at you and he saw all of the sin that you would choose to commit. He saw the pain you would inflict on other people. He saw poor decisions and mistakes that you would make. He saw you as an enemy of the kingdom of heaven and everything he stands for. And he looked at you and he said, I love you. I want you. And I will do anything to remove all of the stuff that separates us. And this is why this passage in Romans 5 is so important for us to get imprinted on our hearts. Let the Holy Spirit drive this deep inside of you because if you can believe this, when questions arise and when suffering and tragedy strikes, you can fall back on this truth that while you were a sinner, God loved you. While you were an enemy of the kingdom of heaven, that is when God loved you. When you are at your darkest and deepest and furthest point from God, that is where God loved you. And if we would believe that, that truth will reshape our life. Friends, when you are sharing Jesus with someone and questions begin to arise, it's not about shifting from relationship to academic conversations. It's about offering truth, the truth of Jesus. You get to offer the truth of freedom from sin and guilt, complete innocence of all sin through a relationship with Jesus. You get to offer hope in the midst of dark circumstances through a relationship with Jesus. And you get to tell the world that God loves them. You get to speak to a world that's so desperate for love that it seeks it out in all the wrong places. And it manufactures idols and solutions just to feel a fraction of love. And you get to offer the love of God that is real and lasting and perfect. And if you are still struggling and thinking, yeah, but Mark, when I get into these conversations with people, I just don't know where to go. I don't know how to explain it. I don't have the theological vernacular to explain all of this stuff. So what do I say? And this is where the beauty of the gospel is that God has made this so simple for us. It's not about teaching theological terms. If you want to show someone that God loves them, show them the cross. Show them a savior who loved them so much that he took on all of their sin and guilt and died for them. Show them a savior who died and was buried and was resurrected three days later, demonstrating power over sin and death and offering life to those who would follow him. If you want to show the world love, show them Jesus. And when the world continues to ask the question of who cares in the midst of trauma and tragedy, who cares about us, we get to scream to the world, God cares about you. It's God who loves sinners. 
And so the question that we then ask as followers of Jesus, as those who have been made innocent, as those who have been saved, as those who have been placed in eternal relationship with God, the question we ask is this, do I love sinners? Do I love the people around me enough to share the truth of Jesus? Let's pray. God, we know we don't love people enough. God, if we're honest, we know that we have our preferences, that we prefer comfort, that we prefer convenience. God, would you help us to die to ourselves? Would you help us to follow the example that you set on the cross, to die to ourself and to live for you? God, would you help us to remember these truths, the truth of justification, of being made innocent, of all of our sin being wiped away and being adopted into your family. God, would you help us to remember hope in the midst of suffering? God, would you help us to be a light that instead of defaulting to the world's perspective on these issues, God, that we would offer truth, that we would offer the gospel, that we would pull people to you. And God, would you remember, help us to remember that you love us. That there is nothing in all creation that can ever separate us from the love of God. God, would you help us to trust you, to believe in you and your love for us and to share that with those around us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.